reading of Scripture this morning, which you'll find in the Gospel of St. John, chapter 20. We'll look at, uh, read verses 19 through 29. John, chapter 20, beginning in verse 19, let us hear and attend to the reading of God's Word. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my fingers into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. The followers of Jesus began meeting on the first day of the week, our Sunday. We sometimes get the, the um, number of the days kind of confused because we're weekend kind of people. But uh, Sunday is really the first day of the week. And Sunday in the old calendar was the first day of the week following the seventh day Sabbath. Well, the followers of Jesus began meeting on the first day of the week signifying the importance of the resurrection. It's not just on Easter that we celebrate the resurrection, although it's a wonderful focus and we're glad to draw the attention to it, but it's every Lord's Day, every first day, Lord's Day, we gather in the name of Jesus, we who are believers, who are Christians, to worship Him as our risen Lord and Savior, and that's a regular part of the new covenant worship of God. It shows the importance of the resurrection inaugurating the new covenant, which God promised and Jesus fulfilled. The transition from Old Covenant and from Old Covenant worship, now celebrating the resurrection, being identified as Christians by Trinitarian baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, acknowledging that Jesus is indeed the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, and yet He came as a real human to substitute for us what animals could not do and what the blood of animals could not do. Jesus did. You see, Jesus had to be like us, truly human, to substitute for us. Jesus had to also be equal with God to satisfy God. And that's the wonder of the incarnation and the wonder of the resurrection. And that we being identified with Christ through baptism is an outward sign of a supernatural reality that we are livingly united to Him with a true spiritual life. And the Lord's Supper gives us an object lesson. That we are made alive in Christ because Jesus came in a body like ours. Because Jesus gave his life blood to substitute for us. So the bread and the cup 
represent to us and signify a greater reality of what Jesus did for us once and for all. Uh, Jesus is not being re-crucified in this Lord's Supper. This is not really the, the body and the blood of Jesus. It's a symbol of what his body and his blood accomplished and did. And so that's why we recognize it as something greater by faith. And we'll have more to say about that as we go along. But there is this attesting to the fresh and the better witness by the Holy Spirit to a new and better way of the public worship of God. Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit here in this passage. It's confusing to some people when Jesus breathes upon the disciples and says uh, to receive the Holy Spirit. It wasn't that they hadn't uh, received the Holy Spirit previously or that they needed to have a second receiving of the Holy Spirit. It was in specifically Jesus sending them out and saying, as the Father sent me, now I'm sending you. Go in the power of the Holy Spirit. Go with the authority of God to bind the conscience with sin and to release the conscience with forgiveness, not within themselves, but in rehearsing and witnessing to the power of God through Christ. That's what the authority is that Jesus gave them to to, um, uh, hold people guilty in their conscience for their sin or to release people in their conscience from the guilt of their sin, not with the power that the apostles had, but in the witness to Christ and his resurrection. This is why your sins can be forgiven. This is why you can go at peace with God. Or this is why I can say and preach here that if you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, you're guilty before God. Your sins will be accounted for. If they are not forgiven through Christ, then God will hold you accountable for your sin. I'm not being mean when I tell you that. I am calling you and pleading with you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And so that's the point in terms of the transition that has come through the power of the resurrection and the new covenant that we celebrate and rejoice in because Jesus is risen from the dead. But now, you need to understand that this was not all clearly and fully understood immediately for the disciples and for the followers of Jesus. It didn't just happen overnight. Now, there are some who are Christians as well who come to faith in Jesus Christ, and it takes time to grow in the faith. The Scriptures use that analogy for us like a child, being born again and then growing up out of childhood into adulthood as a Christian. Not in terms of your life, but in terms of your faith. Can you... Uh, identify with that i was born again like a newborn babe i was nourished on the milk of the word of god i was a child in my understanding of the things of god i was in wonderment about the christmas story i was absolutely uh brokenhearted when jesus died on the cross i cried and they told me that he rose again from the dead as a little child in faith i grasped these things and began to think on them but then i grew up and i began to understand more the witness of my baptism was reminded to me of what what this means. And then when I became a professing believer and uh, and member of the church to take the Lord's Supper, I grew up and I began to put away the childish uh, centered thoughts about just me and my Christian faith to recognize a broader part of what I'm to do and how I'm to serve God and to grow up as a, a mature Christian, not to be easily... Uh, pulled away by the things of the world. It's one of the challenges that we have, isn't it? That we still want to be children. Like We want to go to heaven, but oh, we want to do all the things the world says are fun. And yet the conscience of the Holy Spirit witnessing to us and saying, no, that's sinful. Don't do that. Don't go that way. Don't be with those people. And we want to in our flesh, but we have to grow up. And growing up, we become stronger to resist temptation and to follow Christ and to be even ridiculed and often shamed and and despised because we say we're Christians and because we want to be kind and helpful, and yet at the same time we are an offense to the world because we say, no, God says that you're not to live that way or do that or behave that way. 
And so growing up in our Christian faith is something we too have to um, experience. It just doesn't happen over, overnight. And for the disciples and the followers of Jesus, the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant and the new and better way of worshiping God, it didn't just happen overnight. They had to grow up into it. Now there's a sanctified or a holy object lesson illustrating the progressive realization and application of the new covenant fulfillment that the disciples of Jesus and the followers of Jesus uh, had. It's given in two appearances of the resurrected Jesus a week apart. He, he appears to his apostles, uh, the, the remaining uh, disciples and apostles who were chosen by him. Remember, Judas had defected and had, had uh, gone the way of death. He killed himself because of his guilt. He didn't turn to Jesus in forgiveness. Peter had been restored because Peter turned to the Lord and asked for forgiveness. He had denied the Lord three times, but the Lord forgave him because Jesus sought, I mean, because Peter sought the forgiveness from Jesus. One was restored, one was destroyed. And that's a great lesson to us in all of that as well. But now, Jesus appears the second time to his disciples, a week apart, on the, the second Lord's Day, uh, from when he first appeared to them. And this time, Thomas is with him, or with them. We read about the first time that Jesus appeared. Uh, on the same evening, he appeared in, to them in the upper room. They were gathered there because they were afraid. And Jesus appeared to them and spoke peace to them. But Thomas was not with them. And they went and told Thomas. And Thomas said, well, I'm not going to believe it unless I can see the print of the nails in his hands where they crucified him. And I'll put my, my fingers there and I can touch it and I can feel it. Or I'll, I'll put my hand into his side and I'll know that it's really him. So that's where Thomas was struggling with all of this. But the thing that we read is that on the second Lord's Day, eight days later, Thomas is with them in the upper room. And Jesus comes and appears to them that second time as well. So in his resurrection appearances, Jesus' most intimate friends and fellow believers did not immediately recognize him until he supernaturally identified himself. And so their faith was something more than seeing. And that's what I'm wanting to impress upon you this morning, that faith is more than seeing, okay? And that Jesus gives a resurrection beatitude for our faith in that we haven't seen with our physical eyes in the days of his public ministry. We haven't seen Jesus in history, time, and place in his incarnation. There is something greater, the seeing by faith. And that's what Jesus gives a blessing for. Uh, you probably know that Jesus in the resurrection was not recognized by his most intimate and close friends. The, some of the women and, and even the apostles did not recognize him until he identified himself to them. They were seeing him. He was standing right there before Mary hugged him and was clinging to him. And Jesus said, you can't hold me here, Mary. You, can't, you have to stop clinging to me. She thought he was the gardener, remember? She says, where have you laid the body? Let me know. I'll go get it and I'll take it away. And Jesus turned to her. She'd been talking to him. But Jesus looked her in the face and said, Mary. And he revealed himself to her. It was a supernatural revealing, making himself known. So there's something wonderful going on here. And this happened more than once. And this is what must happen for you and for me. We can hear all about the historical Jesus. But until Jesus speaks to us in, the, in our soul and calls us and we turn to him and we say, you are my Lord, you are my Savior. I don't have to see you with my eyes. I believe you. You revealed yourself to me. And I believe and accept this is my Savior. This is Jesus. So Jesus' spiritual resurrection person and body were the same but different. Now, does that... Uh, 
stretch your mind a little bit when we say, okay, this is Jesus in his resurrection body in person. It's the same Jesus, it's the same body, but it's different because of the resurrection. There's something wonderful going on here. And so Jesus identified himself to the disciples in the upper room. We read here in John chapter 20 the first time he identified himself to them. How did he identify himself? He said, look at the nail prints in my hand. Look at my pierced side. It is me. I am with you. I am here. He came. The door was closed. He didn't walk up the steps. He didn't open the door. He just appeared to them because of the supernatural wonder of his resurrection and who he is. It was the same Jesus, but there's something supernatural and wonderful going on here. He appeared in their midst, but he identified himself to them by his wounds. So when Thomas is told that the Lord appeared to them and how thrilled and excited they were and how they were commissioned by Jesus now to be his witnesses with authority over the conscience of people in the name of God, Thomas said, well, I'm not going to believe it unless I can touch his prints of the nails in his hand, unless I can put my hand into the side where his wound was. And so Jesus appears the second week, the second Lord's Day, he appears to them again. This time, Thomas is with them. And Jesus gives an accommodation to Thomas, but it's the same one that he granted to the disciples the previous week. He says, Thomas, here, touch the wound of my hand where I was crucified. Put your hand into my side where I was stabbed. Yeah, you can do that. Come, do that. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. So, Jesus was not scolding Thomas. Jesus was graciously giving Thomas the same accommodation that he had given the other disciples the week before. And you know what he was doing? He was showing his mercy to Thomas. Thomas, you weren't here the first time. Shame on you that you didn't believe. But Thomas, you did come the second time. Blessed are you, Thomas, that you believed. We struggle with our faith, don't we? Sometimes we're set back. Sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we're uncertain. Sometimes we begin to doubt. But the Lord Jesus is always merciful. And the Lord Jesus always brings us back to himself. And so Jesus offered Thomas the same accommodation that he had given the other disciples. And I believe that Jesus commissioned Thomas just like he did the other disciples with the Holy Spirit. As I told you before, it was not their receiving the Holy Spirit in regeneration. They were already regenerate. They had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But they had received the promise of the Holy Spirit in authority to be the witnesses to Jesus with the authority over human conscience to say, this is what God commands. So I can say that to you this morning. You may be mad at me. You may not like it. You may say you have no authority to do that. But I'm telling you on authority of Christ, I can command your conscience. Believe or perish. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved or answer before God for your sin's guilt. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So I'm just being a faithful witness like these disciples were, a witness to what I believe and what I know to be true, and that is Jesus has risen and he has commissioned that his gospel be preached and that his word be made known. We're not keeping it secret. I'm not trying to tell you some kind of um, shortcut to heaven. I'm going to have more to say about the Lord's Supper as we go on this morning. It's not a shortcut to heaven. There is only one way for us to receive the promise and the assurance of heaven. And that is by confessing our sin's guilt can only be covered by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his resurrection has made us right with God because he satisfied God's penalty for sin. Do you understand that a holy God has a penalty against sin? Because he's holy. 
What other kind of God would you want? The gods of the world are a figment of human imagination. Most of the time, they're just enlarged human projections of particular human qualities, sometimes noble, sometimes ignoble. If you look at uh, mysticism or, or myth- mythology, various mythologies of the world. But the Lord Jesus stands before us as God who deals with our sin-ridden conscience. We are guilty before a holy God. I don't have to prove that to you. Your, your conscience bears witness to it. All I have to do is be, be truthful to the word of God. But here's the good news. Your sins can be forgiven. So there's no shortcut to heaven. There's only one way to heaven. And that is through Jesus Christ and faith in him. As the Savior who has come. Who is God and man. Who died for sin's guilt and penalty. But who rose again for justification. That we might be made right with God. He bore away the penalty of our sin. Have you ever considered this? The Bible tells us that our sin's guilt is an eternal judgment. Why? Because God is eternal. Because God is uncreated. Because God is forever. So he tells us that our sin's guilt is forever unless God takes it away. And a holy God will not compromise his holiness. He won't become less holy. So what does he do? He has provided his judgment to be satisfied, and his holiness to be um, equaled in that Jesus never sinned. And so Jesus took our sins upon him, and he suffered the eternal satisfaction for God because Jesus is the eternal God himself. There is a great mystery, a great wonder. I can't explain it all to you, but I can tell you in terms that you can believe. You can understand that it's only God who equals God. You can understand that it's only a human that can substitute for a human. You understand that animal sacrifices were not sufficient. A lamb can't die for a human because a lamb is not a human. I don't care how much you love Fluffy, how much you have a a pet dog or or a, a kitten that you think the world of, they are not human and they never will be human. And they will never, in any blood of an animal, chicken, goat, Uh, sheep, ox, nothing can substitute and satisfy God but human for human and God for God. And thereby we have the wonder and the mystery of Jesus the God-man. And so this is what we're told in terms of the goodness of God and that this revelation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that God approved his death and his, his sacrifice. And that therefore we may have forgiveness. And so Jesus gives the resurrection beatitude. He says to, to Thomas, uh, you, you see this at the end of, uh, of that chapter that we read. When he says uh, in verse 29, Thomas, because you have uh, seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So this is Jesus' resurrection beatitude. Now, I want you to notice something here. Jesus' resurrection beatitude is accompanied by an ironic contrast about the limitations of sight or other senses, to to see, to hear, to smell, to touch, to taste, you know, uh, all the senses. None of the senses are sufficient as proof. You cannot prove God by your senses. 
And this is one of the problems that we have oftentimes. We, we want somehow to have that kind of proof for our own satisfaction. And when the scriptures call us rather to faith, it's not proof on your satisfaction. It's faith that God has given. It's a wonderful gift from God. And that is what is sufficient to believe. You see, all your, your human limitations are insufficient. You are not equal to God. So, What I think is an ironic contrast here, and I don't want you to miss this, is that when Thomas is identified to us uh, back at the beginning of of, uh, where we read there, that Thomas is identified as who? Thomas is a twin. Did you pick up on that? Uh, Some translations say Didymus. Thomas Didymus. And the word Didymus simply means twin. Now, some have tried to stretch this and say, oh, that was a nickname for Thomas. Well, I don't know whether it was a nickname or not, but I know how the word is used, and the word is used consistently to represent someone who is a twin, someone who has a twin sibling. We don't know anything about Thomas's twin sibling. Was it another boy? Was it a girl? Were they identical twins or fraternal twins? We're not told. But I think that there's something that we need to pay attention to here because Thomas has identified for us more than once as a twin. And what does that suggest to you? That our senses can be fooled. Do you know that there is a a common, both fictional and real stories about identical twins fooling people? Have you ever come across that? I know they've made movies about it and that kind of thing. But if you Google it, (laughs) if you Google it, you'll find out that there are some pretty comical antics that identical twins have pulled. You'll also find, unfortunately, there's some pretty sordid things that identical twins have done. And there are even criminal things that identical twins have done. So it's a, a fairly common knowledge that identical twins can fool people. Thomas is here represented to us as a twin. And what does Jesus say? There is a blessing beyond seeing. Thomas, blessed are you because you've seen, but blessed are they who have not seen. See, our faith is not confirmed by sight. We can't prove anything with our senses. We can be fooled even by identical twins. But Jesus says, you can't fool me. And you know what's more important? God doesn't try to fool us. God isn't playing games. You think you can play games with God? He can read your mind. You can't hide anything from him. That's part of his being God. We may not like that, but it doesn't change the fact of who he is. And so you cannot prove God. You're not big enough to prove God. The question is, do you believe God? And that's the the point that Jesus is making here. Thomas and the other disciples, apostles, you believed. You saw me. You saw me in your midst with all the mysterious wonder of my appearing to you without opening the door and yet my having a real body that you can touch me and that I can eat. I am who I am. I am the same person and I'm the same body, but now I'm different because of the resurrection. And that's the promise that I make to you. I save you for who you are. But you will be different. And you will be eternally different as well. That's the hope that is set before us and the the pledge of the resurrection. So Jesus' urgent command to Thomas in verse 27, Don't be unbelieving, but believing. And the confession of Thomas, My Lord and my God. That attests to faith in gospel terms. That's what we all are to do. We all are to confess 
by believing that Jesus is Lord and God. This is what Paul wrote of the same thing, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, as mysterious as all this is, God gives us the clear answer. Believe and be saved. If you believe in your heart and you confess it with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Confessing the resurrection and the power of Jesus to save you. Who can save you? The one who's overcome death. Nobody else can save you. You can't save yourself. But Jesus who has overcome death can save you. You know, I think this passage in Romans is really interesting too. I, I just want to use this as an aside, but where Paul writes there and says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, we have to be very careful how we deal with Scripture. If we try to force some kind of, of literalism on Scripture, and when I say literalism, I don't mean what it really means, but I mean to push it beyond its um, uh, received meaning. For example, people who can't speak would be excluded from salvation, wouldn't they? What about people who have uh, um, some limitation that they are mute and they cannot speak? Does that exclude them from salvation? Because as the Bible says, you've got to confess with your mouth. You see, that's the way some people try to treat Scripture. And I'm just using that as an aside illustration that we really need to understand how Scripture is used. When Scripture tells us that Jesus rose from the dead, it presents it as fact. When Scripture says we're to confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, it's saying that we are to confess and to know who Jesus is. If you have an impairment where you can't speak, that doesn't stop you from being saved. You can acknowledge. That's what the point is. Acknowledging that Jesus is Savior. And so we do that publicly by baptism in the Lord's Supper. We acknowledge that we believe that Jesus is is our Savior. We believe it in our heart. We confess it with our mouth. And so, Jesus verifies the saving faith for all who believe is more than seeing, more than what we can uh, validate by human senses of our, uh, and our intellect and our reason. Thus, the meaning of what we refer to as the sacraments or the holy mysteries is by revelation from God. Don't let that word sacrament fool you. It's simply a... a a borrow word from Latin that was borrowed from Greek that means a mystery. Something that God reveals that we couldn't otherwise know. That's all that a sacrament means. A holy secret. God has revealed what we couldn't otherwise know. How would we know about this bread or about this cup of wine or juice? Do you eat bread? I eat bread all the time. I like bread. Do you have juice or wine? Maybe some of you have juice or wine on a regular basis. But it's not the Lord's Supper. That's the point that's being made. That there's a mystery here in how this bread and this wine represent something else. And it's by the words of institution that they're identified. And so I want you to think about this. Um, he tells us what these things mean and how they're to be used in the believer's life of faith. So I want to ask you a question. Was Jesus more real and more present by his appearance in the upper room to the disciples who were gathered there, or through his Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's the point that Jesus brings us to in terms of recognizing faith. Jesus is saying, I am not more real to you because I'm in your presence with my body. The greater reality is the Holy Spirit's presence. And I'm not bound or limited. And I, I think that's a real challenge for us. Jesus is not more local or present in the elements of the Lord's Supper 
But rather these elements symbolize the greater promise of his abiding presence through the words of institution. Jesus is saying, I am more real to you by faith than this bread and this cup are to your physical senses. Jesus calls us to faith, to believe something that God has revealed that we couldn't otherwise know. Here's a great and wonderful mystery. Jesus says, you believe that bread is real? You believe that cup of juice or wine is real? To your even physical senses, you can validate and say, yeah, that's real. Jesus says, I am more real to you by faith. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. Jesus was not more real because he was present with them in the upper room. As a matter of fact, he said, I'm going to give you the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send you out with my authority. And I'm going to be more real and present with you than I am even in my physical presence with you in this room. See, that's faith. Jesus is calling us to faith, to believe his word and to believe his promise, to, re- to believe the supernatural wonders that he has revealed as mysteries that we couldn't otherwise know. Now, Thomas' faith is not appreciated. Uh, rather, it seems to be the step of faith that Thomas uh, takes that Jesus blesses in his re- re- unrestrained confession you are my Lord. You are my God. And, and Jesus says, Thomas, you're blessed because I'm here with you. But blessed are those who haven't seen who will believe. Jesus was talking about you and me. Because we were not in that upper room. And Jesus is saying, I don't have to appear in physical form for people to believe. There's a greater reality, a greater presence, and a greater work of God. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. So Jesus was speaking about those who after his ascension into heaven would believe on him throughout time and history across the generations. Uh, Those gathered here this morning who believe on him, who believe having not seen him with our physical eyes, but believe him as he's made known to us and revealed to us by the witness of the Holy Spirit. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote, I'm sorry, the Apostle Peter wrote that I want you to listen to very carefully in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. It's in your study notes if you want to, um, to look at it, but it follows up on exactly what Jesus said to Thomas. Remember, Peter was there. He heard Jesus say this. So what does Peter write? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Peter saw Jesus. Peter was with Jesus. Peter was in the upper room when Jesus spoke these words to Thomas. But what does Peter say as a spokesman for Jesus? What does he say to us who believe? Who have not seen. Blessed are we who believe but have not seen. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith. What is it that's the end or the goal of our faith that believing in Jesus and confessing him even whom we have not seen that is far more precious than any earthly treasure, something far more treasure than or, or valuable than what we can hold in our hands? What is it that Peter says following up on what Jesus said about that blessing to those who believe? You receive the goal of your faith, the purpose and the intent of God's promise. What is it? The salvation of your souls. Is there anything of greater value? Beloved, if you have been saved and you know God's mercy and forgiveness and the promise of everlasting life, you know the value of a soul. And if you have love for someone else, you're not sure if they're a believer. I mean, it could be in your own family or extended family. Someone that you're not sure is a believer. You know the value of a soul. 
and you're praying and your heart's heavy and you cry out to the Lord for the value of their eternal soul because you love them. This is what Peter is saying to us who believe, even though we haven't seen Jesus with our eyes, even though we haven't touched the nail prints or put our hand into his stab wound in his side. He says we're blessed because we believe the report that's been given and the Holy Spirit validates it to us beyond our physical senses that we believe and confess with our mouth that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And in that we have salvation. That's our hope of salvation. So it's the same but different with the elements of the Lord's Supper. As we come to observe this Lord's Supper this morning, I want you to know there is no power in the bread or in the cup in their nature. These elements are not supernaturally changed into something other than bread or juice of the vine. However, there is supernatural power present by the words of institution identifying what these elements symbolize as spiritually real. You see, there's no power in the bread. There's no power in that cup. But the words of institution identify for us where the power is to be found. The power is found in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. These elements remind us and call us to faith to believe. Uh, Here is a portion from the Westminster Confession, chapter 29, that is really helpful, I think. The Lord Jesus hath in this ordinance, this Lord's Supper ordained by him, appointed his ministers to declare his word of institution to the people. The word of institution is to accompany this Lord's Supper. I don't make up my own incantation. I don't try to make up a magic spell. I don't give you my words. I am to simply rehearse the words of Jesus. To pray and to bless the elements of bread and wine, and thereby to set them apart from a common to a holy use. This is common bread and common juice or wine. It's nothing special. I think we get it at one of the local grocery stores. See, there's nothing special about it. It doesn't have some kind of mystic powder that it's mixed up with. We don't put the wine or the juice through some kind of special uh, device. No, there's no magic going on. That's foolishness. What we have are these common elements set apart to something special. Why? Because the words of institution identify them for us. And so the outward elements in this sacrament, duly set apart to the use ordained by Christ, have such relation to Him crucified as that truly, yet sacramentally or mysterily, in a mysterious way only, they are sometimes called by the name of the things they represent, to wit, the body and the blood of Christ. This is called the body of Christ. This is called the blood of Christ. Not because it changes into anything special, because it symbolically represents what Jesus has done because of who He is. So the substance and the nature remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. So I want you to understand what is the greater reality here. The bread and the cup are not the greater reality. They're symbols of a greater reality. We receive the bread and the cup to our physical senses, but we receive the words of institution and the greater reality that they represent. We receive those by faith. So there are two things going on here. Physically, we're taking bread and we're taking a cup. We're going to eat it. We're going to drink it. But it's set apart to something special, identifying and reminding us of a greater reality that in faith we're confessing we believe who Jesus is as our Savior. So those things are woven together in a wonderful object lesson. Now I want to ask you a question. If the spiritual power 
was in, in these elements themselves, what would be the use of faith? You see, what if this bread was like an energy bar? Or what if this uh, cup was like an energy drink? You've had those, haven't you? You've eaten an energy bar or you've taken some energy drink. And it has an effect on your body, doesn't it? It gives you a boost. It gives you a shot. I mean, it, you can feel the effect of it. Because there's something in the energy bar or something in the energy drink that affects your body. But that's not what this Lord's Supper is. It doesn't operate independent. This is not some supernatural energy bar or some supernatural energy drink. These are symbols. They call us to faith. You see, if the power was just in the bread or in the cup, why would you need faith? Some people make that huge mistake. And so what do you do? You're in a trap, see? Oh, I've got to have that magic bread. I've got to have that magic drink. That's what keeps me in faith. But how often can you have it? And when? When do you need it again? You see, such foolishness. If the power was just in these elements. But we're not receiving these elements as having a power unto themselves. We are taking these elements symbolically to represent collectively our faith, like Thomas, my Lord and my God. Jesus is our Savior. And we witness to that publicly by obeying Him and by the words of institution that identify for us what this symbolizes. You know, Jesus is called the Lamb of God. Does that make Jesus a sheep? Jesus is called the water of life. Does that turn him into water? Jesus is called the bread of life. Does that make him bread? You see how foolish that kind of thinking is? Jesus wasn't turned into a sheep. Jesus wasn't turned into water. Jesus wasn't turned into bread. We get that. That doesn't confuse us. Well, this Lord's Supper shouldn't confuse us either. That these symbols are of a greater reality and that faith is a greater truth by which we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we take this bread and we take this cup, I am telling you to take it in the way that Jesus told Thomas. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. And God uses this to build our faith because we're challenged every day to unbelief. We're challenged not to believe this. We're challenged that we are fools. We're challenged that we're missing something. But Jesus says, no, don't listen to the world. Listen to me. Jesus gave his Holy Spirit so that we would be convinced and that we need to take the means that he has given to us that we might be strengthened. So this Lord's Supper on this Easter Sunday attest to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth that God has raised Him from the dead. And this is not the table of Brookwood Presbyterian Church. It is the Lord's Supper. Jesus gave us this. So who may take of this Lord's Supper? Jesus says, if you have identified with me in baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the new covenant sign of our being washed clean from our sin and our being united with Christ by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, So if you have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you have confessed that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, 
as a member of the, a local church, not necessarily this church, but you've come forward, you've publicly testified and identified, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, that He has been raised from the dead. And if you're not harboring unconfessed sin, what, what I mean by that is you're not running away from God. You're not, not coming to grips with your own sinfulness. doesn't mean that you don't struggle with it. doesn't mean that you don't have temptation or that you are working through something very hard, a sin that has really got its grip on you. Sometimes it's resentment against other people. We have to confess that and ask God's grace to overcome it and help us to be forgiving and merciful as He is. Remember I said it doesn't always just happen overnight. You may not feel differently. You may say, I've confessed that sin. I don't want to feel that way. You're struggling with it. You're fighting with it, but you're not hiding it. You're not denying it. Now, some people in false spirituality say, oh, I'm not going to take the Lord's Supper because I have sin. But you're not confessing your sin. Don't think that makes you safe. I'm telling you, believe. Take this Lord's Supper. Humble yourself to God and say, Lord, help me. Help me. In my Christian faith, let go of the hurt. Accept the forgiveness. Do you keep bringing up and replaying the tape in your own mind of your sin? God says, blank that tape. Throw it out. Take that CD and chunk it as far as as the east is from the west. Never replay it again. That's what God says He does with your sin's guilt. He throws it away. He remembers it against you no more. Why do you keep replaying it? Because the devil has a tactic. He wants to keep us down. Does that mean that that sin wasn't really serious? No, it can be a very serious sin. But what it means is that God's grace is greater than all your sin. That's what I'm calling you to believe. That's what I'm saying with the power of the Holy Spirit and the witness of Jesus. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. So we turn to our hymn of preparation This morning, hymn number 157.